Welcome to the pod. Right, okay, we're starting. Hello, Hello. welcome to Idiot. <laughs> exactly, we've been we've been away for a long while now, but we have our excuses. First of all, Thomas went to Venice. Then I got COVID, and then, then I, I went got to, sick. Yeah, then I went to Naples. So I think that's our program for the past few yeah. weeks, man. Yeah, but we didn't forget about you. No, we didn't forget about you guys. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Idiologica Obscura. I'm Thomas, and of course I'm with uh, Aaron. A Aaron, uh, a <laughs> and uh, this is going to be the final episode in the uh, our our uh, series of uh, national Bolsheviks. Yeah, our long journey of talking about fascism with a mix of communism. Yeah. is coming to an end. So it, I'm excited. Yeah, no, we're all excited, uh, and we're all ready to uh, you know take out take it out back and uh, make a popping sound. Let's make a. Hey Aaron, I, d- I did want to ask you a joke uh, at the beginning. Um, what kind of poop does a national Bolshevik have? Red and brown. Yep. <laughs> See, I mean, you, you are most faithful listeners. If you have listened to the podcast properly, you would have guessed uh, this joke as well. Uh, any callers that want to that want to give a guess, you'll win five hundred rubles. So that's like what two dollars at right this now? point. Two dollars after the massive amounts of receiving, which is good by the way yeah we're gonna we're this is where our podcast becomes political exactly. <laughs> we, we, we have the hot take of thinking that russia is bad actually yeah and if any of you any of you uh say that i'm a uh libtard uh cuck um go fuck yourself uh but no i love you it doesn't matter what political ideology you are except you're, if you're a fascist uh fuck you um we all love you and Please keep listening to this podcast. Yeah, so this, wanna, that, that was a very long introduction. Because, so let's get reading. Let's get reading. So as we left off, we left off at the end of the beginning of the end of history. Yes, the um, end of history being World War Two. No, world. No, it be that being <laughs> the Cold War. Uh, we ended with the the collapse of Soviet style communism worldwide and especially in Europe, um, and that is going to spark. Uh, Russian national Bolshevism. But in order to understand it, in order to talk about it, we have to go back <laughs> to World War II in order to talk about one of the key players, if not the key player, in post-Soviet national Bolshevism. So we go back to World War II. Um, in the year is 1943. We are in the city of uh, Zerzinsk, located in the Gorky Oblast in the USSR. A city where a man named Eduard Limonov was born. Though he and his family would move to the Ukrainian city of uh, Kharkov, Marde uh, Kharkiv, and would grow up to become a, uh, a dissident writer and poet, ultimately forcing him and his wife to flee to New York City in 1974. In the Big Apple, he would mix with Bohemian literati and leftists and began writing his magnum opus, It's Me, Eddie, 
a novel about a Russian immigrant in New York, and includes vulgar language and explicit descriptions, such as one scene of, a ma- of the main character giving head to a black guy. Funnily enough, yeah, you would... Very, very exhilarating stuff. Very exhilarating stuff. He also wrote another um, one about where he was living with homeless people who he would occasionally have sex with. What what was this man's obsession with sex? Like, did he not have a very happy marriage? No, I, I well, well, we'll see that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see that. It was at Spoiler this... Spoiler t- alert. So, this was also where he began his thought to develop his own style. That being a style that was loud. His leather-clad, bad lad style and hoodlum air combined with his Eddie baby persona would become a, a key staple of later on in his political life. In simple how, terms, imagine if Leon Trotsky was a bisexual rock star. I love how the guy like started embodying his fan fiction in real life. Like that's <laughs> that's some dedication to his craft, man. Also, a sign of narcissism. But we should talk about national bolshevism, not yeah. to do a character analysis. No, yeah. Well, I mean, technically, all politics is personal, so we have to do character analysis. Exactly. And another character development of his was his. Eclectic political views in which he would now become a staple of his later political leanings. His heroes being the Russian anarchist Mikhail Bakunin, Joseph Stalin, Italian futurists, and Yukio Mishima, the no-fap Japanese ultranationalist that eventually committed seppuku. That's a very diverse soup of intellectuals and leaders, I'd say. Yeah, but one thing that was consistent was his uh opposition to what he saw in america yeah it's banal capitalist culture it's uh democracy that was nothing more than a window dressing for its corporate for their corporate overlords um and basically just the sense that it was just liberalism as well that's a very interesting tidbit though because like Whenever I see a radical thinker, like regardless of the ideology or the religion, you see that they spent a certain amount of time in the U.S. So they like they prob they probably developed their ideology in contrast to what they saw in the U.S. Yeah, no, I think that is, I think that does make make it part of it because you know, um, when you're because you develop your ideology based on where you where you go to, yeah. and it can either become. In, in contrast to where you are or with where you are. Yeah, it can, it can either comply or contrast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, no, I think you're definitely right about that, Aaron. And this guy definitely contrasted, man. He did. And he probably got sick and tired of New York um, and it's all banal bullshit and got sick and tired of, uh, you know, hanging out with bohemians and blowing guys, you know. He's kind of tired. He wanted a new change yeah. of scenery. So in 1980, he moved to Paris, but the city bored him. Because there was, quote, no war there. But between 1980 and 1991 was when Limonov really came into his own, uh, in his own national Bolshevik ideology. Because he would make contact with key figures, such as the French far-right thinker Alain uh, de Benoist and our good old friend Théoriel. Yep, he's back, baby. If you don't remember, uh, go back to episode two, uh, check him out. He is the main guy that was responsible for Belgian national Bolshevism. Yeah. Something that I never thought I would come across uh, in, in when I was doing my initial research for this. But hey, the world is full of surprises, right? It is, and that's why we do this podcast. Exactly. This is a very pleasant surprise, y'all, in episode three of Ideological Obscura. Yeah, and thank you to our one Belgian listener as well. Yeah. Um, but if you remember, if you're a good student, you took your notes and you do the required readings as well as the recommended readings, 
you would have known that this was the same time that humanitarian, basically national Bolshevik ideas were being disseminated into Russia. Yeah. Um, with the with you know Glasnost and Demokratizatsiya, um, people were be- and also uh, what was it? Perestroika. Perestroika. All these reforms were, you know, opening up Russia and changing it. And democratizing it. Democra- decentralizing it. Decentralizing it, democratizing it, reforming it. And it was become, and new ideas were flowing into Russia um, in order to uh, bring new bring new blood uh, into the, the stale communist state that exactly. it was in. With that dissemination, one idea that would become very important for national Bolsheviks um, in Russia the idea of Eurasia contra America. Eurasia uh, against America. Basically, the East versus the West. This but I mean, a- West as in Eurasia also covers like Western Europe as well, right? Depends on who you ask. Because, I mean, Eurasia, at least, like, for some people, Eurasia is Europe and Asia. Mm-hmm. While for other people, Eurasia is, like, the countries that both are in, ge- both geographically are in... Europe and Asia, like yeah. Turkey and Russia. Exactly. I think it very much depends on who you ask, yeah. because some people will see themselves as part of Euro- of a larger Eurasia, see themselves as more have rejecting the idea of Western um, ideology, like we saw with um, you know the PCN. They were very much uh, in favor of unifying with Russia against uh, Western liberal capitalism. Um, and that unification... The idea of a greater Eura- of Eurasia against the West became very influential for a very important idea that was uh, for a guy named Alexander Dugin, who was who is a Moscovite far right intellectual who was influenced by national Bolsheviks um, from the conservative revolution, like Van den Broek, uh, Eurasian ideologues, which is an ideology we'll get to, we'll have its own episode. God, I wish I. If only there were a podcast that would cover ideology. Oh, I, 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 oh, I can only wish. As well as far-right esotericism, such as the Italian neo-fascist Julius Evola. But much like every other national Bolshevik, he was interested in geopolitics. Because he was particularly, even today, he's still alive, particularly fanatical, fanatical critic against a so-called one-worldism. That of uh, Pax Americana. The American peace. Yes, for, exactly. For our viewers that don't know Latin. Yeah, I mean, I don't know Latin either. I, I just, don't know Latin either. The, the, the name of this, the name of this, of this podcast was just something I just put together. We we wrote it funny. to sound smart. Yeah, exactly. Um, are we smart? No, but no. It's all. I mean, it's fake it's, it till it's, you make it's it. It's all bro. an impressions game. Like exactly. So, when Limonov returned to Russia, and this is where we left off in the second episode. Yeah, he arrived. At the perfect time, because there was a perfect storm of events that were laid itself out for Limonov to stake his claim in a burgeoning realm of political groups. And as we said, the Cold War was over. Most of the former Warsaw Pact countries had broken away and overthrew communism. In the last ditch attempt, communist hardliners attempted a coup in order to stop Gorbachev's reformist policies in August of 1991. That failed and led to the further independence of other states like Estonia. I think Lithuania and most importantly Ukraine. Yeah. And then by December 26 of 1991, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was officially dissolved, bringing the end of 74 years of communist dominance over the country and seemingly the end of ideology, the end of history, if you will. 
Russia would become a federal republic, and other states would become independent. Gorbachev would resign his position, leaving Boris Yeltsin as president of an independent Russia. And as you guys know, Russia continued being a peaceful, democratic country after the dissolving of the Soviet Union. Yes. Russia is a part of the Western world round. Exactly. Russia is good, actually. Oh, oh shit, I forgot it isn't. Oh my god. Oh my god, what? No! What? Holy shit, I forgot. Because... This only lasted for two years, <laughs> yeah. baby. Not even, probably. Because a year later, in 1992, Yeltsin would begin his uh, neoliberal economic reforms that were, you know, pro-West and part of the Washington Consensus. Um, so, like, the Washington Consensus... The Washington Consensus basically advocated for privatization of state-owned enterprises. Yeah. Like, basically putting your country in the international market where, like, free trade can commence. Exactly. This was things that were enforced, that were encouraged or enforced uh, by the IMF and Western powers. And it was a thing that was derisively known as shock therapy that many countries in Latin America may know about and may know that it is very bad because it included mass privatization uh, of state-owned businesses economic austerity that gutted funding for public services. Um, and the goal, in order to, you know, uh, in, encourage more capital um, and more investment uh, into Russia. Basically hyper-globalization. Hyper exactly. The goal was to wipe the slate clean of decaying communist autarkic state and rebuild Russia as a capitalist parasite. Capitalist parasite. Parasite. <laughs> capitalist parasite. <laughs> this is my right friend. Yeah, Freudian slip. That's what Capitalist paradise from the ground up. Evidently, this did not happen. Russia was plunged into an economic crisis with mass poverty and unemployment, skyrocketing death rates and plummeting birth rates. Because when you gut all, because when every when you privatize all the businesses, everybody loses their jobs. And when you gut funding for pu for public services, people can't go to hospitals. And this led to basically Russian society bursting at the seams. People couldn't have, people were dying. Gangster, you had this is where you had the rise of oligarchs, and it was just this is what people often call gangster capitalism. But I mean, this you is also capitalism. Had radical Islam in Chechnya. Oh, yeah, you did. You had, and, and because and because of that, that problem, you had you know burgeoning independence movements within Russia itself, exactly. I mean. And, and plus, the capitalists that were supposed to come in and rebuild Russia practically stole everything right down to the copper wiring, resulting in mass capital flight. And if that wasn't enough, many ethnic Russians now found themselves outside of their own countries with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Sometime, and this is something that, with too much foreshadowing, that I cannot make a joke out of it. Exactly. Not only was... And so... This was a situation that you were at, that were, most Russians were in. Not only had their great nation been seemingly defeated by the West without a single shot being fired, but they were now economically ransacked by it, militarily incapable. And, you know, basically they were reduced to a second-rate power. A national humiliation that was much like the one that we saw in Germany after World War One. Man, just imagine, like, imagine what's going to happen to a country like Russia that's in crisis. Like, maybe it's going to pay way for new ideologies to pop up, eh? Exactly. I wonder, and that is... I wonder which one we're going to talk about <laughs> in this episode. And because of that humiliation, it was, it was fell across the political spectrum and led to, you know, new ideologies coming out. Republicans, neo-communists, monarchists, fascists, neo-pagans, 
and our good old national Bolsheviks. And so in opposition to Yeltsin administration's various um, ideologies crossing basically the uh, being bipartisan, you know, yeah. uh, the shaking hands meme, would cross the traditional left-right distinction and would create what we know as the uh, the red-brown opposition, much like their poop. <laughs> the red-brown opposition bloc, which Limanov would find himself joining in 1993. He would describe one protest that he attended in which he said, quote, It was the first time I saw the red flags with the, with the hammer and sickle flying together with the black, yellow, and white flags of old Russia. This alliance would include Stalinists, neo-communists, czarists, nationalists, and fascists. Now, that's definitely an unholy alliance. An unholy alliance. This would be coalesced around one group called the National Salvation Front with its unofficial mouthpiece being the anti the incredibly anti-Semitic and conspiratorial journal. In one story, it claimed that American Zionist lasers had altered Yeltsin, Yeltsin's brain. Though, honestly, I think it was just the alcohol. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think the laser's an interpretative word for alcohol. No, I think they, you know, they were being literal. They were like... I how do you even like change someone's mind with lasers? And inspired by this creation of the Red Brown Alliance, Limonov would get in contact with Dugan, and they would create a thing called the National Bolshevik Front in 1992. But in 1993, this Red Brown opposition would be put to the test. Because in October of that year, Yeltsin would launch a coup against uh, the highest ruling body in its parliament, uh, trying to dissolve them. In response, they impeached him, and as any reasonable politician uh, would respond, he sent tanks and bombarded the parliament, which was being defended by various groups, including uh, pro unarmed protesters, uh, particularly leftists as well as far-right uh, members, uh, the, na the National Salvation Front, and the National Bolsheviks. Because at this point, they had reformed themselves uh, into the, no the National Bolshevik Party for some weird reason. However, Yeltsin's coup would be successful, and most of the members of the National Salvation Front would be arrested. But Most democratic Russian politicians. Exactly. <laughs> but the National Bolshevik Party would continue its opposition to Yeltsin. So, what was the NBP? The National Bolshevik Party. It, well, it was a Russian ultranationalist party that sought that sought state control over the means of production. They were virulently anti-intellectual, anti-Western, anti-NATO, and anti-democratic. Their main position, uh, policy position, was pan-Russian ultranationalism that threatened to reunite the quote republics where Russian populations exceeded over fifty percent, such as Crimea. Northern Kazakhstan, the Narva region in Estonia, and etc. Reunification uh, with this uh, so-called near abroad was actually not a fringe idea in the 1990s, with a poll in 1995 uh, showing that 33% of the Russian population agreed with this concept. A concept that would come about again in very recent times. Yes, we, we live during these times, yes. we may add. In order to underscore this nationalism, um, they would actually support Yeltsin on one thing. His brutal war against the Chechens in 1994, in the first Chechen war. Um, 
and you know Limonov would also be involved in activism, such as uh, attending a pro-Russian protest in Crimea, but would be kicked out of Ukraine and banned from the country. Ukraine, stop being the coolest kid on the block for five-second <laughs> challenge. Impossible. <laughs> However, since we all know that politics is mainly about vibes, what was their aesthetic? Well, their core styles were, one, provocative, and two, leathery. It was the romanticized uh, utopian ideal of a national revolution combined with a nihilistic war cult and violent chauvinism. Free love with fascist fashion. Military boots, hot women, short haircuts, and black leather. And in order to underscore this aesthetic, their old flag used to be uh, a red background with a white circle with a black hammer and sickle. Black hammer and sickle. Red background, white circle, black symbol in the middle. What does that sound like? I don't know. I, I, I have it, no idea. Yeah, I, I couldn't. It sounds, I it sounds it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It almost... Something, something, maybe something German, maybe? Something sounds quite German it Sounds to me. German to me. Anyway, what kind of people would join this kind of movement? This, uh, was it, I mean, it couldn't have only just been for ideology. It could have also been just for boobs, I guess, you know? Um, yeah. Well, the National Bolshevik Party was a very motley crew. It would include people that were foreign fighters in post-communist war zones, radical leftists and right-wingers, nonconformist artists, anarchist rockers, nihilistic punks, mystics, fanatical idealists, and crazy romantics. So all the people you don't want to hang out with, basically. <laughs> A nightmare blunt rotation. Nightmare blunt rotation. For the boomers out there, it's anyone you the, the worst people to smoke weed with. Yes. Because they'll just... They'll they'll either be like screaming about like you know a, a Zionist conspiracy, um, telling you like, hey man, um, ha- have you tried DMT or like these would be like it, it varies from racist to like insufferable um what's it called uh insufferable like artist artist students and yeah. like Joe Rogan listeners. So so either either you're gonna listen to a fucked on of racism or you're just gonna listen to people ranting about arts in a very unholy way <laughs> though in simple terms this wasn't actually an eclectic bunch that matched what limonov wanted because the NBP would become more and more of a personality quote and this would be underscored when uh dugan left in 1998 over ideological reasons however as the party entered the new millennium they would be facing legal troubles because in 1999 14 people were arrested for allegedly trying to establish a Russian breakaway republic in northern Kazakhstan by force of arms. The MBP would almost publicly champion them from 2000 to 2001, because in 2001, Limonov was arrested for trumped-up charges over the alleged connection with the North uh, Kazakhstan insurrection plot, but he would be released on parole in 2003. But during that time when Limon- when their basically their leader was in a, somewhere in a gulag in Siberia, the national Bolsheviks were, you know, still pretty active. And one of the things I think was is very important and very interesting about the national Bolsheviks is that they simply didn't sit around and wait for the national revolution to happen. They didn't just, like, you know, like we've seen with other groups, just sit and just write journals um, and talk about theory endlessly. Um, yeah, they were actually proactive. Yeah, they were, they, they were out there doing radicalism. I mean, they did have a journal called Limontka, 
um, which means like little little lemon in, in Russian, which describes a, a particular type of grenade, yeah. which is their like you know one of their symbols. Because they you know they'd be involved in direct militant actions, um, both in Russia and Latvia, particularly in the early two thousands. In two thousand, for example. In 2003, NBP activists climbed the observation floor of the St. Peter Cathedral in Riga, barricading themselves in. They then threatened to detonate grenades inside the cathedral unless Russian World War II veterans were released from Latvian jails. Latvian Russians were guaranteed equal rights, and Latvia refused to join NATO. Yeah, because the thing that Latvia wants to do most is become a Russian puppet state again. Yeah. <laughs> um... Though they would eventually surrender uh, after the Russian ambassador talked uh, talk with them, though it, it turned out that their grenades were wooden. <laughs> well, the limonkas were fake. Oh my god! Another inv- incident was in 2002 when MVP members threw tomatoes at the NATO uh, Secretary General in protests against NATO uh, expansion eastward. And lastly, in 2003. MBP members threw mayonnaise at the Russia's chairman of the Electoral Commission over unfair elections. Another thing that actually happened in, two, in the early 2000s um, was actually they went down a reformist uh, pathway. Hmm. Because but How can you even reform national bolsters? I feel like it's corrupted from its roots. Well, we'll see, actually. Because, um, it, because since Limonov was gone... Uh, the guy in charge was a guy named Vladimir Linderman, which is an interesting name because it doesn't sound very Russian. He's not. He's act- he is ethnic Russian, but he's a Jewish Latvian ethnic Russian who uh, came became in charge of it and began its reformist path. For example, he changed the flag uh, to ha- to get rid of the the red background and replace it with an all back- black background. Though the most important change came in two thousand four with the so called minimum program. This was an attempt to secure the party's registration as an all-Russian organization that had been repeatedly denied by the Ministry of Justice. Basically, they wanted to become legit. And this was uh, something that was done by removing authoritarian language that Dugan had previously put in the first party program um, in favor of like liberal lexicon. No more did they talk about uh, a, uh, a chauvinistic Russian state, but instead they repealed to things like you know national sovereignty and stuff yeah. like that. Something that would gain wider recognition, you know? Exactly. So they tried to reform the party by making it more liberal. And this was something that Limonov endorsed, because at that time, he was out in 2003. This is 2004. But despite this reformist turn, the inter-party's regional organizational status was revoked by the Russian Supreme Court in November 2005. This caused a major split in the party in, in March of 2006, with rightists in the party criticizing Linderman's de-radicalization of, the, of its agenda, alongside with your average anti-Semitism. I mean, of course. <laughs> because, I mean, if you're racist and you're going to criticize someone Jewish, then of course you're going to have to be anti-Semitic. Exactly. And this resulted uh, in either them, being, either them leaving or being kicked out of the party. And thus, those that were uh, pissed off with the whole... Uh, liberal turn decided to create their own party called the National Bolshevik Front. Say it with me now, Splitters! <laughs> and actually today, and they're still active today, um, but being part of uh, the Duganite Eurasian Youth Union. 
something that we'll talk about in another episode. Yeah, I feel like you need an Excel sheet to like understand how many times the party split, man. No, oh, <laughs> well, it changes. It's, it, it you're gonna see more changes. To be honest, you need to have a high IQ to understand that. You, you, you need to have an high IQ. To, to, in, yeah, it's, it, yeah, much culture. like listening to a Joe Rogan podcast, you have to have an IQ above like a two hundred. Two hundred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, man, you have to be a real smart cookie. <laughs> <laughs> so. Many saw the party moving toward a left-wing liber- liberalism um, and revolutionary democracy, which was reflected in its gro- in its um, ter- rhetorical turn um, to go against Putin's authoritarianism, um, and would align themselves um, under the ba- the banner of basic democracy and human rights. And this was a correct assessment because the MVP would form an alliance with the mainstream liberal opposition in July of two thousand six. Um, as part of a larger protest movement against Putin. However, their continued activism led to harassment by the police and security forces, and high-profile court trials um, led to them be led to most of their activists getting imprisoned or even killed. Um, and eventually, they were banned in two thousand seven. However, they would still continue uh, in their anti-Putin activism. And would continue to associate with the with the liberals, particularly in the liberal protest movement strategy thirty one that would occur in two thousand nine. However, this protest movement would be ultimately a failure since you know Putin's still around today. Yeah. Um, and Limonov then decided to reorganize the party um, into a new organization in two thousand ten, calling it Other Russia. Despite bearing a similar name to a liberal opposition movement. It would move away from the liberals um, and become increasingly nationalistic and pro-Putin. Because I'm basically, if you can't defeat your enemy, then you join them. At least that's the philosophy Limono follows. Yeah, and he would become, and actually I think he would become a talk show host that would be a, a Putin pundit for a while. Ugh. Because in 2014, shit got real in Eastern Europe. Ukraine had overthrown uh, the Russian-backed president Yanukovych in a popular Maidan revolution after protests in Kiev against Yanukovych's move against away from the EU. This revolution then sparked uh, anti-Maidan and pro-Russian sentiments in eastern parts of the country, leading to the annexation of Crimea by Russia and separate and Russian separatist uprisings in Donetsk and Luhansk, leading to a civil war basically in, in in ukraine not even a civil war like a total war because russia also sent its special force operatives yeah to ba- the region. yeah basically it was became became a uh, proxy war it became a proxy war between russian-backed uh puppets in luhansk and donetsk no but there were also like russian troops yeah no i'm you know but but yeah no you're right there were russian troops and like so like they were actually fighting a war since 2014 like yeah a week ago it just became official yeah um, and what I actually what I find striking be, after like you know I would watch like Vice documentaries and stuff like that. Um, Man, Vice used to be so good. No, they're still pretty good. They still make some good stuff. Like I mean, that's I, Vice I, news. I preferred Vice when they were covering conflict zones. I they they say. they're good. At, they're still good with conflict zones. Like they were, they've been covering these Ukrainian conflicts. Um, though when I would watch them, the one thing that that struck me out uh, way back. Uh, like in 2014 or 2015 when I was still a teenager and watching this stuff, these separatist states and also some Russians as well, is that how they use, um, particularly around their propaganda and discourse, is how they use the memory of the Soviet Union and communist aesthetics, in which they use it as part of a nationalistic nostalgia because, you know, 
um, they see the Soviet Union as an a, a pinnacle of Russian might and power, and like you know, with other histories like the United States. So if you're and if you're an American, you may understand this. Even though we are very much ideologically different from like you know the slaveholders of like uh, Washington or Jefferson or conservative elements that have been part of American history, we still view all those eras and times as part of one continuous history in which we are all proud of. Um, at least. Average Americans are, and this is kind of a similar thing in that the the Soviet Union is not in opposition uh, to like you know the Russian Empire. It's all part of this continuous thing of Russian greatness. In that the communist um, elements of it are the most uh, recent a- aspects of it, and, and they're you know very much tied into the Russian national identity. So overall, like yeah, Russian history of never-ending imperialism. Yeah, exactly, and. Never ending, yeah, because it's just the it's a continuation of empire, and that is something that we see again today. That aesthetic and that idea of uh, of communism in opposition to the West is something that still holds a lot of sway over a lot of people, particularly in you know Western leftists as well, somewhat Western leftists, mind you. Yeah. And this is how they've been able to also sell people that hey, this is a war, this is an anti-fascist war. We're doing the same thing. Uh, we're defending our borders. We're defending Russian ethnic Russians, just like uh, we've been defending against uh, the Nazis. And yeah, it's another great patriotic war. And like, if you're against us, then you're basically a Nazi. Exactly. That, they, at least that's a discord that discourse they're trying yeah, to. Yeah, and that whole that idea. Promote. Sorry, there's this bug that keeps flying. Like fuck, fuck, fuck off. Fuck you, bud. Damn, Sorry, bro. I got violent what's there. That, what's that? What's that? What's <laughs> that? Buck phobia. <laughs> yeah. So in that the patriotic war, I mean, it's it's about it's about it's patriotic. Yeah. Your your patriot your it's for the Russian nation, which is which by extension was the Soviet Union, and that's how they've been able to convince people like, hey, these Ukrainians they're Nazis. They're going against us anti-fascist Russians. We're the we're we're communists. The and Nazi, hell, the Nazi Ukraine with the Jewish president. Exactly. Hell, I mean, Donetsk hosted an international anti-fascist forum. You can look up the pictures online, and they had Russian, Spanish, German, and Turkish communists attend. Yep, Turkish communists love going to war zones. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention, um, Limonov also had divorced and remarried several times and had allegedly dated underage women. Not once, but twice. Yeah, he doesn't really sound like a good person. <laughs> At least, like, based on these last half an hour, I don't think he's a good person, actually. Yeah, and then it gets worse because he would, you know, they support it. They were, this is this is what they want. Yeah. A, a nationalistic a war uh, of Russia, a nationalistic um, war by Russians against um, a supposedly Western, uh, Western-backed um, elements, you know, with a red aesthetic. This was perfect for him. And so... Then other Russia would set formed two armed interbrigades, an homage to uh, left-wing international brigades sent to Republican Spain during the Spanish Civil War, in which two of them have allegedly died. Though their most famous fighter was actually not from Russia. He was, in fact, a black Latvian named Benesh Ayo, who was also known as, uh, by his nom de guerre, Black Lenin. Now, he is someone I'm going to devote a, an entire bonus episode to. Black Lenin. Yeah. Revolutionary Just... king. Okay, so we talked about national Bolshevists. 
in Russia. So yes. you're probably asking us, yo, we were talking about Belgium last episode. What happened there? Yeah. And we're going to update you on it as well now because... Yeah. They're Thomas, still kicking. Exactly. They're, Unfortunately, they're still kicking. I mean, <laughs> they they have their... You can find their, your, their headquarters on Google Earth and... It, their headquarters is a, basically abandoned. The PCN logo on there, on on uh, for the sign is 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 faded. Uh, the windows are boarded up, and there's an abandoned kebab shop on the on the floor below it. <laughs> um, nice. And they often just tell their uh, supporters to vote for the far right Flemish separatist party Vlaams Belang. Though that doesn't mean that Mukmichel isn't active. He's still active. Um, and plus, their website's still active. He's got a He's got his own podcast as well, where he champions uh, the anti-imperialist cause of the likes of Vladimir Putin and uh, Bashar al-Assad. Yeah, because as you know, imperialism is only done by the United States. Exactly. It's never, it was a concept invented by John Adams and George Washington. <laughs> imperialism done by, country, by countries outside of the West? Impossible. Yeah, kind of cringe. <laughs> Um, and, and actually, one of the things that he did was his most recent um, high-profile activity um, that he did was is that he visited Burundi in 2016, where he was basically the PR guy for the authoritarian Nkurunziza administration, um, which only ended in 2020. The fucker called himself a geostrategist. Geostrategist. He's an armchair general. He's an armchair general. <laughs> he, play, he plays Hearts of Iron 4. <laughs> he plays yeah. like war games. And, and I hate, said, I, I mean, I love <laughs> video games, but the damage that war games has done to the collective consciousness is nothing to scoff at. If Hitler employed me as a general, I want to beat the Soviets in two months. <laughs> I crave death. Though, speaking of death, another thing that ended <laughs> <laughs> another thing that ended in 2020 was Limanov's life. Rest in piss, motherfucker. Um, and in his shit, in his memory of his shitty legacy, other Russia rebranded themselves to the other Russia of E.V. Limanov. That terrible name. Not to, it's it's too long. I'd say. It's too long. I mean, even other Russia was cringe. It's like just like even like abbreviation. It's not gonna sound good. Yeah, we're gonna call it Oriv Oriv Orlv or or Orlv. Or, 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 yeah, literally, that like, sounds like a Russian. That sounds like a that like they're like a drunk Russian it, guy yeah, trying to say a like name. A, it doesn't have a pizzazz to it. You no, know? there's it no pizzazz. Yeah, it's, it's it's not what Limonov would have wanted. There's no pizzazz. It, you disappoint his own legacy, you, you, you stupid national Bolsheviks. Speaking of stupidity, there, there's one thing that would still remain, despite national Bolsheviks, you know, uh, still being a fringe party. Russian ultranationalism, which remains today and is extolled instead by uh, the Putin administration. And the most atrocious demonstration of that has been the full-scale... Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. So our thoughts and prayers, I'm not saying it's in a joking way, our thoughts and prayers are with the soldiers defending the front lines and, the, and also the people trying to survive in a war. people zone. are trying to survive as well as the refugees. And exactly. Yeah. Regardless of the skin color of the refugees. Exactly. Because they, they are united under the condition that they're all refugees. Exactly. Yeah. Our, our, uh, we uh, we we pray that everyone uh, gets out uh, well and healthy. Uh, let's hope the war ends in a peaceful conclusion. Me too.
points. And on that somber note, we would like to end this episode um, and this series on national Bolshevism. And we would like to thank our amazing listeners for getting us over 100 views, as well as Aiden George, uh, who has been so kind to let us use his music that you will will have heard. Um, and check out his YouTube channel. His link The link will be in the description. Um, and we hope to return back to our more or less regularly scheduled programming. Uh, inshallah. Hopefully none- we're going to record the episode every Monday. Yeah. And Thomas is probably going to upload it on Wednesday. Yeah. And inshallah, I don't get I don't get uh, the, the coronavirus. Inshallah. Um, <laughs> but good news. Next episode, we're going to go back in history to the French Revolution. Ooh, it's going to be oldie. I'll be in charge next time. And let's see where that leads, whether it's going to be better, worse, more chaotic. We're just going to see, man. Yeah, we're going to see. It's yeah, going to be. Gonna we're going we're gonna to fuck around and find out. Exactly. That's the entire philosophy of the podcast. Exactly. So have a good one, y'all. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Slav Ukraini. Um, and see you around, guys. Yeah, have a good Peace one. Peace out. Bye bye.